Today in the garage, we have Lana Walker and Marco Forte. Lana Walker practiced exclusively in criminal trial litigation in Toronto for several years before becoming a staff lawyer for Nunavut Legal Aid in 2015, where she currently holds the position of senior criminal lawyer. Throughout her career, Lana has conducted several indictable judge alone and jury trials. Lana recently took a sabbatical from Nunavut Legal Aid and spent a year with the University of Saskatchewan College of Law, where she held the position of director for the Nunavut Law Program. Lana is the president of the Canadian Bar Association's Nunavut Law Branch. Marco Forte is a criminal trial and appeal lawyer practicing exclusively in the Greater Toronto Area. After articling at Pinkowski's, Marco worked for reputed Toronto lawyer James Silver until he opened his own practice in 2011. Marco's practice covers all aspects of criminal defense, from impaired driving matters to murder. In today's Law Garage, Lana, Marco, and I discuss the transition from employed lawyer to sole practitioner, parenting and the criminal law during the pandemic, and some of their early influences in criminal law. Whether you're driving your Nissan Xterra, jamming on your Rickabocker, or prepping a cross on a cop, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Lana and Marco, thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having us, Marco. Good to be here, Marco. Now, I've known both you um, my entire career. Lana and I have met um, during articles, actually. We became very close. And of course, um, Marco and I knew each other from very early on. And then we all converged uh, our professional relationships in 2011 when we all decided to populate what was then Sean Robichaud's new venture, King Law Chambers. Lana, let's start by telling us what you recall about your decision to move to King Law Chambers. So I had been an associate with Hicks Adams since I was called to the bar, so 2008, and I was going into my third year as an associate and I was running a jury trial for the first time with a co-accused and Sean Robichaud represented the co-accused. And um, I was really nervous about the whole thing because I'd never done anything with co-counsel on representing a co-accused. And um, it was fun because Marco, you, I think, watched the majority of my trial and helped strategize um, the trial with me. But during breaks, um, I would chat with Sean and um, his articling student at the time, which was Anna Stufko, and Sean mentioned that he had recently opened up a, a law chambers and he had a few lawyers in there, but he was looking um, to rent office space to anyone who was interested in starting their own practice. And he told me that the Chambers was at King and Bathurst. And I thought, wow, that's perfect. It's right around the corner from my house. And I think at that time I'd been sort of in the hustle of working for a really large criminal defense firm for a few years. I really enjoyed it, but it was getting to be a bit of a grind. And I think at that point I was catching my stride as a lawyer and I was looking for a new challenge. And I think I was ready to think about going out on my own. So that was the opportunity that presented itself just at the right time for me. And that was back in um, January, 2011. And what about you, Marco? Well, what made you join King Law Chambers at that time? 
before telling you about that, Lana, I think you're modest if I recall that case involved, the case, your first jury trial with Sean and yourself involved a firearm in a motor vehicle with two occupants, your defendant and Sean's defendant. And somehow you uh, and Sean convinced the jury to quit both your clients after running a very strategic cutthroat defense. Am I right? That's right. It was the perfect cutthroat defense where the jury has to have a reasonable doubt against both accused. <laughs> that was def- definitely one of the uh, craziest defenses I've, I've seen you run, Lana, uh, in our career. But it was, it, it was exceptional because it worked. Pretty impressive. Sean and I actually bumped into Ed Sapiano in the lawyer's lounge and we told him what we were doing and we were both really excited about it and we both believed in our arguments and he laughed at us and he said, yeah, you, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I'm going to bet that both of you are going to be doing sentencing hearings in another month or so. So yeah, there was not a lot of hope there. Oh, we miss Edward uh, as being one of those counsel senior counsel in the lawyer's lounge that always had uh, an open ear and and a witty comment to make um marco you moved into king law chambers at the same time as we did in 2011 tell us about how that came to be right um i had the privilege and burden uh, one could say of working in very aggressive very demanding law firms uh, first through my articles at pinkowski's uh, which was a large, robust firm with mostly legally aided clients with uh, long hours, lots of casework, lots of court time, and, and it was a great place to cut your teeth. Uh, and, and from there, I transitioned uh, and was offered an opportunity as an associate to work with James Silver and Associates, James Silver and Susan Pennypacker. It was a very different environment, but no less uh, demanding. It was more of a boutique law firm, um, private retainer clients, and it was it was uh, a great opportunity really to expose myself and immerse myself in different types of cases. But at a certain point in time, after about three years, probably the same time you, uh, Marco and Lana, felt uh, a bit of the itch or were hitting our stride, I, I really started to value my time uh, as my own. And, and while I've put probably more time into my practice since going out on my own, um, it's my own time. I set my own hours and, uh, in speaking to lots of senior lawyers that, uh, I've come to know over the years, it seemed like the right move for me at the right time. And, uh, we were fortunate to all sort of land together at King Law Chambers. And it was, uh, it was a beautiful office. I remember, uh, architecturally, and I'll tell some stories later about Marco and I doing some late night decorating sessions uh, at, at the office, but, um, it just seemed like the right time. Like Lana said, um, and uh, I was able to negotiate uh, with James, who was very kind, to take uh, most of my clients with me. So I was able to start my practice with a roster of about 40 clients, which uh, helped me springboard into hanging my own shingle and um, never looked back. I didn't regret the decision for a moment. And Lana, you and I, are we transitioned from, as you indicated, a large firm. It was Hicks Adams at the time. And um, what do you recall taking with you in terms of of experience and influences that you had at that firm when we decided to leave that practice and and move into King Law Chambers? I think um, what I really learned at the firm was the value of the hustle, (laughs) like really how important it was to 
be in court, doing bail hearings, going to the jail, meeting as many clients as you could face to face. And um, the value of building relationships with your colleagues, because um, like Pinkowski's and Marco's experience, um, Hicks Adams was a very large, robust criminal defense firm full of junior and mid-level associates. So there was always the opportunity to um, consult and talk to your colleagues, your peers, um, your mentors, and figure out what you were doing to vent. Um, it was a difficult time in terms of um, a learning curve um, and the time that I had to put in. Um, the hours were really long, but I think, um, yeah, learning really how to cultivate a practice is what I took from that. And when I went out on my own, I um, really didn't take any of those lessons for granted. I put a lot of energy into my clients and um, ensuring that I gave them the time and the energy that they deserved and from that of course the hope is that your clients will see the value in you as a lawyer and pass along your name to other people that find themselves with criminal charges so uh, to me those are kind of two of the um, sort of values that I took from working at Hicks Adams um, and transitioning into my own practice. And Marco, you you came, as you indicated, from a, a boutique firm with James Silver and Susan Pennypacker. But what did you take from there that, that helped you cultivate your practice at King Law Chambers? Right. Um, even, even looking a little further back, uh, if you'll allow me to my time at, at Pinkowski's, it, uh, it was a great place to be and a great place to start your articles. Um, you look down the hallway and, and, and you have Jack Pinkowski, who's actually my articling principal and former G. Arthur Martin Award winner. Um, and and being able to speak to him or walk into David Bayless's office or Ted Royal's office or Liam O'Connor or Reed Rasonic, the list goes on and on. Um, it, it, was, it was really um, a great time to be learning the practice of criminal law. Um, and... If anyone knows Pinkowski's or sat in the infamous boardroom, uh, you know, the Articles of War are uh, hanging on the wall above the boardroom. And it was very much a bunker mentality, us versus them, them being the crown or the police. And uh, it was an insular place in that way. And then with James, he had a special technique and in, in, in a way I, I describe it yeah, as a, learning to win a case in the hallway. Um, before ever going into court, in negotiations with the Crown. Um, he was a master of making the prosecution uh, wish or desire to extricate you from the proceedings just, just because you cause so much muck uh, and, and paper them with applications and, and give them every reason uh, to uh, perhaps cut your client loose, especially in project-type cases or cases with multiple defendants. And uh, he really taught me how to distinguish your client um, my client from from some of the other defendants in the case and it, uh, Susan Pennypacker is an incredible lawyer as well and she really from her other than uh, learning to laugh at <laughs> photos she also taught me uh, the value of preparation 
preparing a case, how to do a proper disclosure review, going to the scene uh, of a crime and, and taking your own photographs, um, canvassing the area, not just relying on the police file or the Crown Disclosure Package. And I had the added bonus also of uh, working with Gary Grill, who was um, not an associate with James Silver, but shared the office space and was James Silver's brother-in-law, is James Silver's brother-in-law. And from Gary, uh, I really learned something that, that I try and take with me today, and it's sometimes hard to remember uh, as, as a defense lawyer, but it's the importance and the obligation of us uh, as defense lawyers, Lana, you'll know, and Marco too, to keep the police and the Crown's office and even the judges that we appear in front of accountable to uh, a very high standard of professionalism, the, the most that's expected. And uh, it's important. It's an important lesson because as defense counsel, you can often be perceived as a mouthpiece for your client or a defender of criminality or worse. Everyone knows all the jokes. And um, it, it, was a, it was an important lesson that we are ministers of justice. We are um, there to make sure that not only our clients' rights are being respected and, and, and uh, they're being represented to the fullest extent, but that we hold everybody else accountable and honest uh, to, to play by uh, the highest standards of rules that our law provides. So those are the lessons that I took with me uh, to my own practice. That's very uh, well said. Lana, are there any senior counsel that were early influences on your practice uh, when you decided to go out, go out on your own? Yeah, so as we've talked about, I was about in my third year, like sort of entering my fourth year when I made the decision to go out on my own. And I had the, I had, had the opportunity to work with many lawyers um, at Hicks Adams. And there are a couple senior counsel that do stand out it's because I was put on two major cases in my first year as a lawyer. And one involved a series of very serious home invasion robberies in the Peel area. And I worked on that as junior counsel with Colin Adams. Um, that was, it went for about three months. And in April um, of 2009, so still my first year of practice approaching the one year mark, I was on a first degree homicide jury trial again with Colin Adams. So I spent a lot of time under Colin's mentorship. And um, I learned a lot from him. From Colin, I really learned how to cross-examine witnesses. And he had a really nice way of doing it. He was a great cross-examiner. Um, I would do all the prep for him. And then he would take the prep, internalize it, and pull off a brilliant cross-examination. And I also, from him, because I was with him for so many months, learned how to speak to a crown and how to make admissions. And he wasn't careless in any way. Um, he really thought about admissions and he talked to me about it and he'd consult the client where necessary, but he was someone who I think really saw through the bullshit and he went to the heart of the issues and he really focused on that. And I think that's a really important lesson I took from him. I specifically recall during the legal aid boycott, that successful murder case you did with Colin, which was lauded by John Struthers, who is now the CLA president, as being a prime example of how valuable the work that senior counsel do at legal aid rates, in fact, is. 
Are there any other early influences on you, Lana? Another lawyer, a senior lawyer who I learned a lot from was Peter Connolly. And from Peter, I didn't learn so much about um, handling witnesses or um, trial strategy per se, um, but I learned a lot about the law. And I think what was really unique about Peter was that he loved mentoring lawyers and he really took the time to do that. I remember, and Marco, you probably remember one Saturday, I think it was our first year of practice that Peter just said he offered himself up and uh, he spent the day with any of the junior lawyers at Hicks Adams that were interested and taught us about evidentiary rules and how to really put those into practice at a trial and how to put together a trial binder with cheat sheets for these different evidentiary issues that you'd come you might come across when running a trial he was very practical um and but he really he really knew the law and he really cared about um teaching junior lawyers and i i thought that was really unique and he wasn't a member of the firm so it was i think it was just such um it's really the way peter mentored and his interest in guiding junior counsel through the process and through what is a very difficult learning curve when you're in criminal law and criminal defense in particular um it was really true to the you know the traditions of the bar he took that responsibility quite seriously and i to this day i've appreciated him as a mentor and he's someone i can still call um to run by you know to run a case by and ask him what he thinks and what i should do you know i still use um peter's suggested opening uh, or introduction to a closing address that he gave us uh and it's my it's my warm-up to every closing address i go through it's eight minutes and i go through that eight minutes no matter what because it loosens me up and it makes me feel comfortable about what i'm going to say next in terms of the evidence in the case and i I've never forgotten that Saturday morning when he handed us that. I mean, it was un, it was handwritten on a piece of paper. I, I've decided to type it out since then. But nonetheless, I still, I still go to that. I don't want to go too far down memory lane here in terms of our experiences, um, especially at when we moved into 620 King, which was, I think, a part in our career where we all felt that we hit a stride and Sean Robichaud opened up this beautiful office for us. Uh, We were all part of it. We had a party to open that office. And I feel like um, at that point, as young counsel in our first five years of practice, to have a group of all counsel in the same vintage practicing out of this boutique office in a you know, old factory on King West in a hip area of Toronto was one of the things that I remember most about my time there. So do either of you, I'll go to Marco here, do either of you have any uh, stories about that experience and the importance of sharing uh, an office space as opposed to where we are now in terms of pandemic, working from home, et cetera? Yeah, I can't go to my seven-year-old, my five-year-old, or my two-year-old for any legal advice. Um, and that's who I share office space with now on most days. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm nostalgic. I, I still miss it. Lana, you remember Marco. I had the best office at at 620 King Street. It was enormous. It was cavernous. It was um, it, it had a wet bar. <laughs> it had a boardroom table. Marco Shara gave me his chairs uh, from, I think, his mother's basement. Um, for my boardroom table, I had a, a proper judge's desk that I acquired um, early in my career. Um, it, it was it was a great office, and it, you felt good meeting clients in, in that office. And as you get older, it becomes maybe less important, and, and your reputation hopefully precedes you in a way. But at that point in our lives, just starting out and, and, and hanging our own shingle, it really made me feel good uh, to walk into that office um, Late nights were spent there working, pouring over disclosure, having a drink, uh, and and even though there wasn't some of those older established lawyers that I name dropped earlier, uh, I I always felt lucky to have Marco and Lana and Sean and and other lawyers that were there um, that were just as eager and just as excited, perhaps even more excited uh, about the practice of law, to to bounce ideas off of. Uh, to talk things through and and it's a really important thing and i and i'm concerned and and i i uh, i remember reading marco your piece that you wrote uh recently that article and it really resonated with me and, I, and i'm somewhat concerned for younger lawyers that i'm not sure are going to have that same opportunity that same connection um to have those open door conversations with other lawyers and um, it really served me well, and it still does. I'm still in a chambers. I make a point of going into uh, my office at least once a week to see Leora Shemesh. I've been in chambers with her for a number of years, and she's also a mentor of mine. Um, and, and just having that connection and talking things through, uh, no matter how experienced you are and, and how many years in you have, um, having someone that, that you can turn to and, and, and bounce your ideas off of is is really important and anyone that tells you they're not learning every day uh in this in this field is lying and um and, and uh so yes that that's what i miss uh, and i think that's what might be missing uh, for future generations of young lawyers and hopefully we could get back to some kind of new normal asap lana uh what do i miss about that time yeah I think what I miss is something that is really, it's really unique to that period of time in our careers and our lives. And it's not something that can be repeated. So it's not, it's not the fault of the pandemic. We can't go back to this time. And it's because the majority of us who were in there were in sort of the same stage in our careers and the same stages in our lives. So I don't think many of us had children at the time. I certainly didn't. Um, Marco, I don't think you did either at the time. You no. said you have a seven-year-old. So, yeah, going back seven years, um, your daughter wouldn't have been born yet. And, you know, so it's it, we didn't have the same ties that, and responsibilities that we have now. And the other thing that I think is, you know, starts to happen as you get, as you advance more in your careers, people pick up different hobbies, like professional hobbies and different interests. Some people are interested in applying for the bench. Some of your friends are becoming judges. Other other friends are, you know, going out of criminal defense and maybe into a more 
they're working for a regulatory body or they're more interested in, you know, management. And it's, you lose that sort of same camaraderie that you have with people who are at the same level in life and in their careers. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a very natural progression. Um, when you work in a professional career, people obviously branch off into different areas. Criminal defense, again, it's it's a challenging area. I've said it a few times, it's difficult, but it's super fun. And I think that's why all three of us are still in it. But I, I think even just looking at the two of you here, the fact that the three of us are still doing criminal defense is a bit unique, right? Like how many of your friends have moved on to other things now? So I think like going back to the question, I miss being with a crew of people who are all at that level with the same energy and we were just really going through that same hustle together i think it was really cool and i just i thought it was, it was one of the best times of my life i thought it was great so just picking up on that if you're advising counsel who are going out on their own and they're let's say their first you know five or six or seven years of practice let's say three to seven years of practice would you advise them to consider a, a group environment like that? Or is it something, because now it seems all too easy to say, well, why incur the expense of a, of a chambers when I can just log in from home and work remotely all the time? That's something that I think it's, it's timely. Right. I'll, I'll jump in for a second. And Lana, your, your last comment made me miss that time in my life more. I didn't realize how much I missed it uh, until now. Absolutely, it's worth it, and and here's why. Um, practice of law, you, you can read gratuitously, you can know the law cold, um, you can have significant trial experience, but at its core, it's still a people business. Uh, it is still a business of interacting with others, persuading others, uh, getting a read on others, and no matter how astute you are um, or how seasoned you might be, w once you lose that day-to-day -day contact with others, with other lawyers, with other people, um, I, I think it does uh, diminish uh, some of what we do and some of your skills uh, that don't, don't get sharpened on a daily basis. Even just walking into Marco's office and trying to convince him of my trial strategy and having him tear it down and having us argue about it makes me better uh, <laughs> and and not to say you can't do that remotely and, and you know technology is a wonderful thing but being face to face with with your colleagues and and, and, and sharing those experiences and that hustle like you said Lana it's 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 worth every penny and if you can get a cool office like we had then all the better like I have in recent years probably done more cases as a Marco Forte's co-counsel than with anybody else in my career I think. All due to him, really, because he's kindly asked me to be his uh, co-counsel. But um, we get into some very, very heated arguments over the defenses that we have. And I think articling students have felt that we get a little too heated. But, <laughs> but we get over it re relatively quickly. But recently we did a murder case or pretrial motions on a murder by Zoom. And it was so much more annoying that I couldn't, you know, tug on his robe and yap in his ear at the break. <laughs> Rather, I had to pick up 
a phone and try to call him and all he has to do is ignore my call and next thing you know we, we can't have those debates anymore so it's a the human interaction to me is important and being in the chambers especially at that time in my career I, I think back and I say to myself like how lucky were we and I don't want to take anything away from Sean because at the end of the day Sean was not much more senior than us and he took this huge risk to open up this chambers and keep a whole lot of young lawyers there first. And now his chambers is, is huge. But at that time, he opened it up. He took that risk. And we went along with him because if he was willing to take such a risk, it didn't seem like that much of a risk for us. That's how I felt at the time. And I know for sure that that's how Lana felt. And so we went along with it and at the end of the day we developed i think a certain level of friendship and importance during that time period but i do agree that um it's a time in your life that you can move on from and one thing that changes and i'm going to ask you guys this is the impact of practicing law when you have children so lana i know you have two toddlers and you're working full-time for the Nunavut Legal Aid as a senior lawyer now. Tell us about the impact of having children on your ability to practice law. So I think I can look at this from two different perspectives. One is pre-pandemic and one is post, well, I guess, mid-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, I went back to work with a one-year-old and I was working in the Nunavut Legal Aid Akalawit office, um, mostly focusing on managing and administering one docket. So we have one courthouse up here, it's in Akalawit. And uh, the rest of the communities we service by circuit court. So I focused on Akalawit, so I didn't have to travel, but it was, I found the difference for me was that I really had to focus on trying to cram in my prep to the nine to five and you guys know that criminal defense does not lend itself to a nine to five it just doesn't happen so it was hard and I found a lot of you know those bonding moments with your colleagues where you're sitting in an office chatting about a case talking about something the crown did that you didn't like and coming up with solutions or remedies like I had to cut those conversations short and I couldn't go for, you know, go for lunch or extended lunches. So like, it was really, really tough trying to work into the nine to five and to avoid working on weekends because I, I was just, you know, I was trying not to have my work life bleed into my time with my child. So that was challenging. Um, But then, you know, obviously I had another child and then when I was on maternity leave, um, the pandemic happened. So I, I feel like my perspective has really changed now because I've been through what I regard as the worst in terms of ch- looking after young children at home and trying to work at the same time. And I've really come to the conclusion that these, those two things don't mesh. Um, so, and I felt like having to parent and try to balance criminal law or working on the side while I was at home, I, I felt kind of robbed of my passion. Like I like working and I like putting effort and energy into it. And I could only do that at like 20%. 
So I, I found like this whole year has been really hard, but now that I'm, you know, our daycares are open again and things are relatively back to normal. It's still hard because like I said, it's hard to fit in the criminal law into the nine to five. And, um, you know, sometimes I think, you know, I, I go back to myself, my late twenties, early thirties. And I go, Oh, you know what? I'm going to have this long conversation with my colleague. Cause this is fun. And I'll just finish off this cross tonight, or I'll just finish reading this case when I get home tonight after I put my kids to bed. And that's always a huge mistake because it, eight o'clock comes around and all I want to do is relax. So the long, the short answer, Marco, is that it's not easy. And I don't know, maybe in 10 years from now, it will become easier. But right now it's, it's a struggle. And uh, see, I know that Marco Forte, he, he does pick up those cases at, after the kids go to bed because he'll call me at 1130 right. after I'm in bed. <laughs> Ask me legal <laughs> questions. <laughs> Tell me, yeah. tell me, um, Marco, uh, you have three children. So tell me um, how it's been for you. I'll tell you a couple of stories. And first of all, you're right. And um, it's actually allowed me to, I don't want to say be somewhat seamless in my approach uh, after having children. And also, regardless of how great of a father I try and be, the role and responsibilities of a mother is still different. Um, it, for example, my wife and I uh, can be working at our respective positions at the uh, large kitchen table, and 10 times out of 10, when our kids need something, they go to her, <laughs> not me. Um, it, and you know, sometimes I'll look at them and I'll say, I'm right here. And, and Francine could be in the middle of a call, and they'll still go to her. Uh, so it's not lost on me um, that difference, um, and it's, it's tangible, and I see it every day. But I do stay up late. Um, I'm sure I'll pay for it one day, but I, you know, I'm, I'm routinely up reading uh, until two in the morning, uh, well after the kids go to bed. Um, and, and that allows me, uh, to, to catch up on stuff that, uh, maybe I'm not able to do because my priorities might lie with my children that afternoon. Um, and working from home has presented some different challenges. Um, one time when, when my wife, I'll tell you a quick story, when my wife wasn't there, so my children had no choice but to ask me uh, for, for something. Uh, I was in a particularly heated Zoom call pre-trial motions w with a judge who was kicking my ass uh, the, whole, the whole motion. Um, and so I was trying to be sharp and, and trying to be responsive and, and flexible and, and looking things up on the fly on my iPad while having the Zoom meeting in my youngest daughter who's five Vivian kept bringing over a bottle of vitamins that she wanted me to open for her. and she wanted me to open the vitamins and and I, I sort of kept kind of gently pushing her away I would I would hold my hand over my mouth and say not now uh, I muted myself and told her you know leave me alone <laughs> in increasingly uh, more direct terms yeah, and in, a, in a direct tone um, and then she wouldn't take no for an answer. She kept presenting me with this vitamin bottle. On the last uh, exchange with her, she spilled a full glass of celery juice on my computer in the middle of these motions, and it actually shut down, uh, <laughs> which is all I needed at the time. And so I, you know, I lose it. I, I lose it on her. At this point, I'm not online anymore because my computer's uh, sizzling, and uh, you know, I yell at her, and I and I yell at her, and. 
I get back online and the judge allows me a recess. I call in my phone just so I can fix my tech. And I feel terrible, uh, you know, that I've had this, this bad moment uh, with my daughter. And so I, I go and I, and I reconcile with her and I, and I try and explain to her that the timing wasn't great, but that it wasn't okay that, that I lost my cool the way I did and that I would try my best not to let it happen again. And I'm having what I think is a really important heart to heart with her. And she looks at me and says, now go get my vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> and I do. Uh, but <laughs> so, so that's one of the challenges that I, that I can call upon and an example, but, um, there's, to me, there's pros as well. Uh, like having that extra time to, to look over and, and, and rather than driving to new market and then Milton in a day, uh, you know, using those extra minutes to, to spend with, with my kids is, uh, is valuable to me. And, and, uh, it'll be something we all look back on one day and then wonder how we got through it, but we, we do the best we can. Yeah, I, I can't complain. I mean, I, I do complain and I shouldn't very complain very much because as um, you both know, I my wife and I had a baby during the pandemic. And as a result of having to do everything by Zoom, I had the opportunity to spend the first eight months very close with her. And just now we feel like we're starting to get out and get back into the real world uh, on a more regular basis. So I agree with you. To a certain extent, there have been some very uh, personal benefits uh, when parenting during the pandemic and practicing criminal law. But it does, in my opinion, impact on that fire that we need to practice criminal law. You know, when I get a new case, when I get a new file, there's something that I get excited about. I, I want to be in court and challenge and see how this is going to play out. And I still get excited about that. And I'm sure you agree. It's a lot harder to do um, on screen, in my opinion. But Lana, what still excites you about the practice of criminal law? I think um, it's the challenge of figuring out the case, what the best strategy is. And um, at the end of the day, I just find criminal law you know, sometimes you deal with tedious tasks, like it's not always fun to go through disclosure with a fine tooth comb to figure out what's outstanding. It's not always fun to synthesize a large volume of disclosure. So you have a really nice document to go back to to reference when you're prepping for your JPT or your trial. But I will say that, you know, despite having tedious tasks here and there, um, I've never, I don't think I've ever once been bored in the practice of criminal law. Like that just doesn't exist. And um, I recently, my, my articling student with Nunavut Legal Aid just recently started mid-May and he was one of the Nunavut Law Program graduates. So I feel very fortunate that I'm, I was able to work with him as his principal. It's, it's been really fun so far. And that's one thing I said to him one day. I said, you know, how's your day been? And he's like, it's been a bit of a grind. And I said, I bet you're not bored. And he said, you know what? I'm, I'm not. And he reflected on that. And he, you know, it really seemed to ruminate with him. The, the practice of criminal law is never boring. And Marco, I think, you know, kind of springboarding off of what you said, Part of what makes criminal law really fun is the dynamic social element of it. And it's not like 
let's go out and party social, but like, let's bump into bumping into Forte in the hallway of College Park before he runs a wicked bail hearing and I'm gonna, you know, do a guilty plea for someone and get them out on time served. Like, what are you here for today? This is what I'm doing. How about you? I'm waiting for the, you know, the complainant to show up on my trial. I don't know if it's going ahead. Like those courtroom interactions to me are like a super important part of criminal law. And that's, that's what I love about it. Even now, like our courthouse is open. And sometimes, uh, you know, I'll choose to go to court, especially now that I have a student, I want to show him the ropes and work with him on files and we'll go to court and I love it. It's, it's part of the job, but to me, it's a pleasure. Like it's always so much fun to go to court, chat with the staff, see who else is there. It's great. And, and that's my favorite part. Court. <laughs> and what about you, Mark? What's your favorite part? I, I couldn't agree with both of you more that problem solving that solving the puzzle uh, that that every case is is a, is a new opportunity uh, still excites me and, and I think and I think you guys will probably agree knowing you both uh, as long as I have the other part of it that, that I like um, is being the underdog right that underdog mentality where you're going up against you know the prosecution the crown's office with their resources and their officers and they're presumption of credibility and and going in as as a as a complete underdog and undermining all of that and, and coming out victorious for your client on the other side you know it's 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 pretty exhilarating it still is for me and, and I, I relish that underdog mentality I like it and it's what motivates me to, to do a good job for my clients and at its core I think seeing and and doing as many cases as I have with uh, with Marco Forte seeing that motivation in him motivates me it's when i think the same no but it's the truth when i see other counsel especially counsel i'm working with who just are still passionate about defending the rights about feeling that we are you know at a disadvantage and that we have to do that go that extra mile that motivates me and it's nice to know that even after so many years of practice, we have colleagues and people that we work with that still can gear themselves up to do that. That does motivate me. And as a result, I think to the lawyers of the past and say, who would it be? Is there anybody that I would think uh, that I would like to see or would have liked to have seen practice or litigate and how they would uh, come across or how they would present themselves. And so I'm going to ask that question to you, Lana. Is there a lawyer that you would have liked to have seen in action, but you have never been able to see for whatever reason? Yeah, I, it's a good question. And I think when I worked in Toronto, I was fortunate to spend a lot of time in court. So I did see a lot of different lawyers litigate. And, um, you know, part of it is I I like to see lawyers running cases. So it doesn't, I, I don't idolize any lawyers in particular. So, uh, you know, sometimes for me, what what's exciting is knowing about a colleague's case, like really intimately knowing a colleague's case and then being present when they're litigating it or hearing about it right after court. Like Marco 
Shara, you and I have been through this scenario so many times, right? We talk about our cases and then I want to know what happens. But, you know, thinking about the question, I know I've worked most recently, like I'm with Nunavut Legal Aid now, but I've recently come from a sabbatical with um, the University of Saskatchewan College of Law. So I worked very closely with a lot of professors from the University of Saskatchewan who traveled here um, to deliver courses um, for our program. And one of those professors really stood out to me, um, partly because he is a criminal lawyer and uh, just partly because of um, his teaching style and um, his, you know, the way he approaches problems. And that's Professor Glenn Luther. So I think I was happy to have a criminal lawyer around and someone senior because there aren't that many senior lawyers where I'm at. Like I'm sort of one of the more senior criminal lawyers here. So I think it was really, for me, it was really refreshing to have a very senior criminal lawyer around, although he, you know, he's a professor and he does not practice um, full time, but it, it was really nice and kind of like, comforting to have someone around that knew the criminal law that I could kind of turn to to run issues by and I know we've talked about that throughout this podcast about how nice it is to have that you know camaraderie with colleagues and people that you work with so I feel like I've never seen him litigate but I've seen him teach and I've seen the way he interacts with students and he kind of took me under his wing and mentored me a bit when I was preparing to teach criminal procedure for the Nunavut Law Program. And he gave me some really good advice. And the way he approached doing that was um, from a place of, you know, he really cared. And it wasn't from a place of, I know better. You know, it was, you know, I have this knowledge and I want to build you up and help you. And he had this really calm way about explaining concepts and explaining how to approach the, you know, the teaching of a particular subject that I, I thought was really clear and um, it really stood out to me. So I, I just, I would love to see, and I know Glenn's a seasoned criminal lawyer. He pra he's practiced for years in both Alberta and Saskatchewan. And I would just love to see how those traits sort of translate into the courtroom and into litigation. So that is one person that I wish I would have had the opportunity to see litigate. That's a very uh, interesting answer. I don't think anybody has gone with an academic, which is always interesting because we look at our professors or people who teach us the law and always wonder if that same uh, those same abilities transpose themselves in the courtroom. So it's an interesting answer. Same question to you, Marco. Anybody, is there any lawyer that you would have liked to see in action but have not been able to? Yeah, um, there is. And I, I guess I felt somewhat deprived of never being able to see Jack Pinkowski uh, in action. And not just because of the stories or the books or, or the awards that, that you know, have been bestowed upon him or have been written about him. Uh, but I had a, a close relationship with Jack. Um, I was more than just his articling student. I was his driver slash chauffeur. Uh, <laughs> he, he would make me drive him everywhere, home, court, uh, and, and he'd always give me these nuggets um, in this time we spent together. I was his transcriber. I was his 
Uber Eats driver at the time, bringing him back fish sandwiches from McDonald's, as he called them. I'd sit in his office where you know, I could barely see him behind a pile and stack of papers and files, and, and, and he'd handwrite something and, and pass it to me abruptly and, and tell me to transcribe it. And we'd talk strategy, we'd talk law, uh, and he's the one actually that told me to read gratuitously, which is a, a lesson I try and pass on to others. He also called me a con man once, but I think he said it endearingly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I, so I had this personal relationship with Jack. He was someone that I could call on the phone. Um, he wouldn't always pick up, but when he did, uh, we'd, have, we'd have long talks. And I would hear the stories from other lawyers, from uh, lawyers of an older vintage about, you know, how relentless he was or his uh, ill-fated three-day closings or uh, just war stories involving Jack. And, and I, I think touching sort of on what I said before, that underdog mentality that, that I relish, he had that. Uh, he had that maybe more than anyone. And, you know, he grew up a tough kid from, from the west side of Toronto and um, similar area where I come from. And I, I felt some kind of a kinship with him, and I, I would have I enjoyed thoroughly uh, the opportunity to see him do his thing in court but by the time I got to article at Pinkies he was uh, very very selective uh, about what cases he would take he wasn't in court that often he was nearing the end of his career um, and so I never got that opportunity uh, to see him on his feet uh, that's one guy that uh, I would have liked to, to have watched in court uh, I think many people at the defense bar would have uh, liked to have that same opportunity Lana Walker and Marco Forte. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the law garage and share your experience with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues, which is something I've really missed throughout the pandemic, as I'm sure you all can see. Thank you very much for your contribution to this project. Thank you, Marco. Thank you, Marco. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out season one and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansonwall. The Law Garage is a J-Mike podcast production.